The Start On Demand. On demand. Mackling is on his way to Calgary. He gets to cover the Grey Cup alongside 680 CJOB's Christian O'Mell, host of the CJOB Sports Show, and of course the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob Irving. We're also going to talk more about downtown safety as we continue our series. It's a three-part series. Today is day two. We're going to learn about the About Face campaign from a brave young man who went to the same high school that I did as he tells us to look beyond our facial differences. We're going to look back at 1990, the last time the Winnipeg Blue Bombers won the Grey Cup. We'll talk about all of our favorite stuff from that year. And we'll tell you about the Robin Hood of Chicken McNuggets. I'm Brett McGarry. Alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, we are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, November 19th podcast for The Start. Mackling, sort of, McGarry and McNabb. We'll explain what that means in a minute because Greg's not here. But before we do anything else, McNabb just alerted me to something (laughs) pretty important in the news. And it involves chicken McNuggets. What's the story here? The most important thing you're going to hear all day, I think. So there's a confession from an Edmonton man who has since been dubbed the Robin Hood of McNuggets. You can find the story at globalnews.ca. I think you just shared it too, or you're about to, Brett. Yeah, I'm going to Um, put it on the, the CJOB Instagram story. But basically this guy on Friday uh, lives in Edmonton and he tweeted out, I worked at McDonald's for two and a half years and I put 11 nuggets in almost every 10 piece (laughs) I made. And he tweeted that out on Friday. It since has been like shared 50,000 times, liked close to 900,000 times. And it's generated a whole host of hilarious responses from people who are writing things like, not all heroes wear capes. (laughs) Or dubbing him the hero in the hairnet. And sort of like Robin Hood. And basically, he was interviewed uh, by both Drex, uh, the shift with Drex, who does the overnight uh, here on CGOB and Global News. And he just decided it would feel good to give everybody a, a bonus nugget. Well, now that he's publicly confessed this, do you think McDonald's, like, he's he's now put it in writing. And he's told the world, I did this for two and a half years. McDonald's, if they really wanted to, they could come after him. Come back and say, you lost 27 cents times... 10,000 nuggets yeah. to pay up. Oh, if they do, it'll be so annoying. This has generated so much goodwill buzz. I'd say that that would be ridiculous. He made a good point. He said, you know what? Like people used to get really mad. They come to the drive-thru and you've done, you've probably been there before. You open up the bag. You're already halfway down the street. The straws are missing. The yep. napkins are missing. I got some food yesterday from a, a different place and uh, no salt, no forks, you know, wow. and I was eating with my kids. It was just frustrating. So he says, we know people get annoyed. So we just threw in this bonus nugget. Plus he was four. So that sounds like something like I could just see this group of guys working at McNuggets being like, let's just make everyone stay with this extra nugget. Well, when I worked at Taco Bell, I always used to get frustrated by the the portions that we were supposed to put on some of the items like the Fry Supreme or the nachos. And uh, sometimes I would just put on extra pumps of cheese or sour cream just because, you know, because it, it always felt a little skimpy. And when the managers would see, they'd say, you can't do that because everything was portioned out exactly. They read like one pump of cheese, mm-hmm. one shot of sour cream. And they're controlling costs. So yeah. that's what they're thinking of, too. And I totally get it. They've got it down to a science and it makes perfect sense. But uh, whenever if somebody like if I saw a friend come in, I would always put on some extra stuff and This also reminds me of the time that I went to the McDonald's in the Walmart on Regent to see my buddy Chad, and he 
Well, first he made me, I think, a quadruple cheeseburger, but then he he tried to prank me while he did it, and he shoved a coffee lid into <laughs> In the between, burger. Yeah. But that burger did not go to me. It went to another customer oh, no. by accident. Oh, no. So I don't think he got in trouble for that, but I think the customer just came back very confused, like, um, there's a coffee lid. Oh, my God. Were you there? <laughs> yeah. Because at least you could be like, I bet you that was for me. Otherwise, you'd think you had, you know, you were about to, that guy's about to launch a major lawsuit, and he thinks he's made made a million yeah. that day. No, he, I, 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 don't, I don't think I was made aware of it until after the fact. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if you... <laughs> If you worked in fast food and did, if you ever gave extra stuff, I guess, let us know, 204-780-6868. And in Global News at 630, you're going to hear some of the comments from the Robin Hood of McDonald's. If you're a long-suffering Blue Bomber fan, and you probably remember exactly where you were that November day in 1990, when the Bombers last won the Cup... Barbara Maine and her daughter Sylvia definitely do. They were in BC for that Blue Bombers victory, and despite all the ups and downs, they haven't lost faith that it's going to happen again. It was insane in the stadium for all the Bomber fans that were there. Uh, everyone ran down to, um, right down to the edge by the field. A bunch of folks jumped onto the field. We kind of uh, hopped. Some of the players actually helped some of the fans down and helped uh, mom down onto the field. And it was it was super exciting. I think we have said so often, well, there's always next year, but this is the year. We're not saying that, this this is the year. So they have obviously clung to that commitment to the blue and gold. Both mom and daughter were actually wearing bomber shirts during that interview yesterday. But of course, so much has changed in the last 30 years since the bomb, the last cup came to Winnipeg, including fashion trends. Here's Global's Amber McGookin with what it was like to party in 1990. <laughs> This is the last time the Winnipeg Blue Bombers held the Grey Cup in their hands. November 25th, 1990, when they beat the Edmonton Eskimos. And a lot has changed in nearly three decades. For starters, the World Wide Web was just being proposed, so no internet and definitely no Wi-Fi. And the Hubble telescope launched into space. In Winnipeg, you could buy a house for about $85,000. The average price now, 324000 bucks. The Christmas classic, Home Alone, was just released. And on the small screen, The Simpsons was just beginning. And on the radio, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby and MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This were topping the charts. The hairstyles and the clothing may have changed, but the fans have kept the same spirit, hoping that will bring home the Grey Cup this year. Amber Gukin, Global News. I forgot the Simpsons. Yes, that, I, when I saw that in her story, I forgot as well. I couldn't believe, A, I knew it was that long, but then when you're reminded, that's crazy. And if you head to our website to see that story, you have to get to the last shot. I was saying to you this morning, like it ends like a Bob and Doug McKenzie type scene. It's like these two guys, God bless them, in their full flannel, which mm. was super popular back then. I immediately Googled top fashion trends of 1990. Flannel was one, overalls, like the grunge look, plus then also the more like, is hypercolor the right way to say more of the hypercolor t-shirts? Oh, yeah. hypercolor and, the, and tie-dye. Tie-dye and, and also getting into the fluorescent. Mm-hmm. Like I remember like having these a sweet 
fluorescent yellow shirt, and then underneath was fluorescent pink, and then you'd roll up the sleeves so you'd get the oh, double, yeah, yeah. double fluorescent look. So I had a pair of shades that one one lens was, or one of the <laughs> part, half of the frame was pink and half was like fire engine yellow. Of course you did. Yeah. beautiful colors. You, I bet you you looked slick. Uh, no, I looked like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone, like, I don't think you can ever look back and be like, now that was hot. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> not I think, not I think the about, 90s. I, was silk shirts also 1990? Silk shirts. I'm trying to remember Ooh. because I would have been 13, and I feel like in grade 7 and 8, I had a ton of button-up, kind of like Parker Lewis style. Parker Lewis. <laughs> button-up. Oh, my God. Silk <laughs> shirts. <laughs> I forgot about Parker Lewis. And colored jeans. I had different colored jeans. Well, we got one text message here. I think it was Roberto who said that uh, his 1990, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action movies. Right now, we got to find out why Greg Mackling is not here. And he joins us now. Greg, what's going on? Where are you? I'm just about to get on a plane to go to Calgary, Alberta for some major sporting event. They're they're not prepared to tell me which one it is until... (laughs) I get there, uh, but I'll let you know when I know. <laughs> I, I, I love your joking because I know how much thought you would have put into this since you learned yesterday that you're being sent to the Grey Cup. How many shirts, Blue Bomber shirts, did you pack? Just my Joe Poplowski jersey. That's the only one I need for good luck. And I uh, found out last night that the Blue Bombers are going to be wearing white, even though they are the home team. They've decided to wear the road white jerseys so that made my choice really easy it was between that or my perry tuttle jersey perry tuttle was with the bombers when they won the won the gray cup in 1990 but of course joe poplowski was on the team had a big touchdown in 1984 when they broke their last drought back in 1984 the 22-year drought so i've got all the bases covered you guys as much as i can so what kind of stuff are you going to get to do then while you're in calgary well I think just about everything. I've got the list of all the different events that are going on. Touchdown Manitoba is Friday afternoon, and it just so happens I don't have to work Friday night. I think it's the only block on the schedule where I don't have an absolute commitment. So I'm going to check that out on behalf of the start. I'll be with you guys tomorrow morning, Thursday, Friday morning hosting the CJOB Wake Up Show Saturday and Sunday from Calgary, pre- and post-game show, Grey Cup Sunday, and Thursday night, Christian O'Mell, who's also with me on this uh, early morning flight. Uh, trust me, getting him out of bed at this time of the day was not easy. Did he bring He's his lucky socks? I'm not asking about lucky anything, okay, Loren. Okay. You know, if you start asking about the lucky, it, the luck wears off. So I'm not asking him anything. If he wants to tweet about his 9-0 lucky socks, he's more than, more than uh, you know, it's, it's, his, it's his privilege to do that. Have these socks been washed? That, uh, Brett, I figure I will know by Regina <laughs> on the plane. <laughs> It's funny that you say that because I saw him yesterday and I said, oh, let's see the socks. And he's like, I haven't been wearing them for nine weeks, Loren. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know what you're up to, but whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. I know you have so much work ahead, Greg, and it's going to be a long week and you're going to be up early with us and then uh, up late uh, for Christian's show. Is there any nervousness or is it mostly excitement for you right now? I mean, I get that you're working on objectivity, but at the same time, you're a longtime fan. 
Oh, big time, right? So this is, if you can combine your two passions, I don't know if you could do it any better than this. I feel very fortunate. I, my only regret is that you guys aren't on this adventure with me, uh, but I will stay connected, of course, and be with you. Uh, I am extremely excited on the professional side, but to see my Blue Bombers in the Grey Cup again and to actually be in Calgary for the game is a dream come true. This will be my sixth Grey Cup, uh, but I've never experienced a Grey Cup festival where the Blue Bombers are involved. So that's going to be something different for sure. Hey, we were talking since it was 1990. Uh, Global Zammer Magukin did a story on what life was like back in 1990. 29 years, <laughs> obviously a lot has changed, but do you remember any right. per, any songs or movies or perhaps fashion trends that uh, you enjoyed from 1990? Like, were you uh, into the flannel shirts or the overalls? No, but I had these great beach pants. <laughs> I'll never forget, I bought on the boardwalk in Gimli from Wally Wallachenko. <laughs> Do you remember Wild Thang? Oh, yeah. Wally's a Transcona guy. I don't know if you know him, Brett. Uh, don't all people from Transcona know one another? The name rings a bell, but uh, <laughs> no, I don't know everyone. I think Transcona. he actually ran. I think Wally actually ran for city council last year, if memory serves me. Anyway, he had this uh, beach brand of uh, surfer dude wear uh, back in, in the early 90s called Wild Thang. And I had these great pants from Wally that I wore with pride. And in 1990, I can remember being only sort of remember being at Portage in Maine for the celebration because, uh, well, let's just say I was 21 years old and I was living like a 21 year old. You were partying <laughs> like it's 1990 because it was. Oh, oh my gosh. My head hurts just thinking about it. So do you think that, uh, and I know you're going to hate when we ask a question like this, but if the Bombers what? win, do you think that yes. there will be another party at Portage in Maine? Oh, I think it'll be as big as it's ever been at Portage in Maine. Um, I think since the return of the Jets, that whole idea of gathering at Portage in Maine has taken on a whole new personality, a whole new life. And then you add in the mix of the of the vote on whether or not to open Portage in Maine. I think there's some people who would be wanting to make a statement and say, yes, this is still a gathering place for Winnipeggers. And it's interesting because I'm pretty sure it was 1990. In fact, I'm, I'm almost certain because the Bombers won in 88 and 1990. I went to see Fleetwood Mac at the Winnipeg Arena the very next day after they won the Grey Cup in 90. And I can remember Stevie Nicks saying, we don't really know what was going on outside our hotel room last night, but it seemed as though it was pretty important to you people. <laughs> and then, of course, the crowd let out a, a, an exuberant uh, yell and scream. So that sticks out in my mind, the fact that uh, Fleetwood Mac was here and obviously staying, I think it was at the Westin at the time at Portage in Maine. So uh, it's a big part of, of the celebrations in Winnipeg. And Christian and I were talking about something that we daren't talk about again but i will this morning like 
what do we do for a celebration? Is there going to be a parade on Tuesday? Are the kids going to get to be out of school Tuesday morning? I know Dana Spiring is listening to me right now going, what are you doing talking about these things ahead of time and, and jinxing things? I'm, I'm kind of breaking my own rules, so I'll shut up now. I was going to say, well, I appreciate you answering the question because we know how superstitious you can be. Send us a list of all the questions we're not to ask you over the next six days, and I'll be sure to ask almost all of them. How's that sound? <laughs> Well, that's my concern, Loren. We love you, So Greg. I will just go with the flow. <laughs> I miss you already, guys. All right, Greg. Safe travels, and uh, maybe we'll check in with you before the end of the show. That sounds great. I'll uh, give you a shout uh, when I land in Cowtown. Hopefully they got one of those white Stetsons waiting for me. Greg Mackling at the airport with Christian O'Mell, host of the CJOB Sports Show. They're on their way to Calgary to join Bob Irving for the Grey Cup coverage. They'll have pre-game show, post-game show. And I just, I want to read this text message, if only for the use of a specific word from Jared, Mm. who says, is all you are going to do is bloviate about sports all day? Bloviate. It's a great use of the word bloviate. Like, I love it. I was like, I don't even know. I had to look it up to be sure that even he was using it right. Talk at length, especially in an inflated or empty way. So I guess it's like talking talking air or... Is that the right expression? Sure. Like, yes. No, Jared, we are not. As we just said, after seven, we're talking about crime and strategies we're going to use in the downtown. We're going to talk throne speech today and some of the promises we think the premier might be making. We've got a great kid coming in to talk about facial differences. We've got lots of other things. But guess what? We don't get here very often. Yeah. We don't get to talk about a trip to the Grey Cup very often. In my lifetime, one, two, three, this is the, four, the fifth. No. Anyway, I can't do the math. My point being... Greg would be able to name the date of every single time. I can go back to 1990 and 88 and 84. So I'm going to say say six times over 40 years. You don't get to do that very often. It's fun. Jared, let us have some fun. Yeah, we're having some fun. This is a great time. It's a celebration. And I know the Bombers haven't won the Grey Cup yet, but we're all excited that our team is going to the Grey Cup. And it's spawning other conversations like 1990 was the last time the Bombers won the Grey Cup. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Mackling is at the airport. He's on his way to Calgary. But Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Forte. 1990 was the last time the Bombers won the Grey Cup. So we're looking back at the year 1990 because Amber McGookin did a story on what life was like back in 1990. And this is ACDC's Thunderstruck, which came out in 1990. That was a suggestion, I believe, from Roberto. So thank you very much for that. Or no, it was Don who sent that text. Pardon me. Thank you, Don. Roberto said the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action movie. Yes. Saw that uh, in the Nipawa Theater. <laughs> oh, God. It was a big day. Which has aged okay. worse? Road trip. The movie or that theater? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think I've aged very well, (laughs) Jeff. So we thought we'd look back at the stuff that we liked in 1990. So, Jeff Braun, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I like that Thunderstruck. Uh, I picked a movie and a musical thing, and it's uh, one of my favorite rock bands had their first album, and Martin Scorsese put out his best movie ever. You know, you're you're funny. (laughs) You mean, let me understand this, because I don't know, maybe it's me, I'm a little up maybe but i'm funny how i mean funny like i'm a clown i amuse you i make you laugh i'm here to f-ing amuse you what do you mean funny funny how how am i funny i'm 
Goodfellas and the uh, Black Crows with Shake Your Moneymaker. Goodfellas is 1990. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, this is the part I don't like about this discussion. <laughs> no, it's, it's, true. it's so true. In fact, it's the same thing that happened to me when I went looking. I thought, no. And then I double-checked some of them because I was like, that cannot be true. It's yeah. like whenever you're watching a movie at home and it pops up on TV and you double-check the date and you're just so sad. I'm always 10 years off. Yeah. Always. Kelly, what, is, what are some of your 1990 memories? Well, we bought our first house in 1990. And uh, it, trust me, it was not a palatial mansion by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, we did really well on that. So that kind of set us off and getting closer to uh, the kind of homes we wanted to live in. And uh, I remember uh, also uh, I was doing play-by-play for the Camels Blazers at the time. They got a chance to go to the Memorial Cup, uh, which was held at Hamilton's Cops Coliseum. So that was kind of a neat deal, both personally and professionally that year. Cool. Yeah, yeah, we text message from somebody saying my youngest daughter was born in 1990. So uh, when you when you said that you got your house, you know, we were talking about movies and stuff, but actual great memories yeah. are cool too. So thanks for sharing that, Kelly. Yeah, you bet. Um, Loren. Well, I have a great memory to this song. Besides the Nipawa Theater? Besides, I have so many 1990s. I think I was 12 or 13. Uh, and so this song we did a lip sync to for 4-H. And now Loren is dancing. Oh. Yes! No. That's not dancing. It's so good. And just what is it? Sick, okay? What's it, Phillips? No. I don't know. Don't you know? It's a chair. It's a go your way. Thank you, Brett. You know what? You can be on my lipstick team. Yes. Thank you. Well, and actually, Hold On by Wilson Phillips was the top song of 1990, according to Billboard. It's so funny because I just was walking out of here to grab a song clip and I heard it on Peggy. And then I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, Wilson Phillips. And I just raced to my computer. That's why I was running so fast there. And oh, okay. Yeah, we heard that down the hall. And here's McNabb's favorite movie. Yeah, no, I know, oh. I know. Yeah, no, I, I thought you'd pick the part where he lays out, uh, what's the name of the guy from Seinfeld that gets beat up by... Uh, Costanza, by but what's his yeah, real Costanza's name? name? Jason Alexander? J- Jason oh, Alexander, yeah. I thought you'd take the scene from was in there. there but, I don't know if yeah. that was my favorite movie of that year, but that quote, big mistake, huge, yeah. <laughs> was repeated a lot by people, so yeah. I like it. You, Brad? Oh, I think the, for me... Uh, and I feel ca- this. I feel like this is a lazy choice, but I have to go with this for my favorite movie. I think we're getting scammed by a kindergartner. <laughs> Home Alone, absolutely. Joe, Joe that, that was going to be my favorite as well. Oh, That's yeah. two for Joe Pesci yeah. in 1990. Wow. Pesci Plus an Oscar. Year. And Forte, that would be your choice. But yes. he wasn't alive in 1990, so you just saw this at some point later, like. <laughs> Retroact in the womb? Were you even in the womb? Well, no. no, you just you grow up with it every Christmas. Like I watch it every Christmas. That's my favorite movie from 1990. Yeah, and then just listening to the clip, I can't. That was that was one that made me go, I can't believe that's 29 years because it just it feels almost brand new again every year. Plus, right? you can watch that movie again and not feel like yeah. it has any dated references, really. Besides, like some of the shoulder pads that uh, his yes. mom wears, yeah. she has yeah. giant shoulder pads. What about yeah. what about Arnie and uh, and Kindergarten Cop? Oh. I have a headache. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. (laughs) (laughs) Is that 1990 as well? Yeah, Yeah, that's 1990. Are you kidding? 
Right now we want to turn the conversation to what we can do better in our downtown when it comes to addressing crime and a whole host of other issues. And we want to focus on libraries. They're not all necessarily about reading. And as Minneapolis, we've been talking about Minneapolis this week and how we might adopt some of their ideas. As they work to deal with a growing problem on homelessness, 680 CJOB's Richard Cluche discovered the library in downtown Minneapolis has become this real safe place for those facing a whole host of issues. Alcoholism, I, I uh, had a series of stumbles and, and uh, trying to you know, get involved with the different programs and stay uh, sober and stuff. 50-year-old Randy Flowers is attempting to overcome his addiction. They didn't judge me. They, uh, his stories, like so many others here on the streets of Minneapolis or any other inner city. I haven't seen you in a while. And there's multiple prongs trying to help people. There are outreach workers, there's a livability team member that are always working with the homeless. Like Winnipeg, the shelters spit people out in the morning and there's very little to do during the day. Sometimes it's drinking, using drugs, panhandling, looking for food. One of the big differences between Winnipeg and Minneapolis, the downtown libraries. Our Millennium Library has airport-style security. The library in downtown Minneapolis is very different. Close to a lot of drop-in centers and shelters and things. Um, And so the library started to really notice that they had a lot of patrons coming in with like social service needs. Kate Coleman is the library outreach coordinator. And so I've been here now for three years. Um, And, you know, I think the main thing is we've really wanted to make sure that all of our patrons walk in the door feeling really welcome. Her job? Help the homeless. I mean, the library is one of the few places downtown where anyone can come. Absolutely anyone is welcome into our doors. Um, and whether you come in to our library after spending the night in shelter or if you're coming in here from a business meeting, you have access to all the same resources. So people come here because it's safe, because it's quiet, because there's resources, and also for like a really strong sense of community. Um, I think people are coming here because they belong. On Sunday mornings is kind of like the big new thing that we added, where we have a movie theater here. We show a free movie every Sunday morning. We have like tabletop games down in our common space down below here. People do adult coloring books, um, play chess, and they play these games like with our library staff. We offer free coffee, um, and it's really just like a space to make sure people feel invited. And we have that available before the library proper is even open. We're inviting people in to shelter from the elements, um, you know, have access to the bathrooms and things like that, and just make sure people know like, we want you here, you're welcome here, this is your space. It's a lovely concept, and we want to talk more about what that library is doing and what Winnipeg could mimic from what they're seeing in Minneapolis. Richard Cloutier joins us live now. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. So share with us, what can we? what's the takeaway from your trip down there in terms of what we can learn from this library scenario? Well, I think it's pretty simple. The fact is, is that in Winnipeg, very much like Minneapolis and other cities, we spit out those who are at the shelters and they wander the streets. And in Winnipeg, there's two places. There's Portage Place and there's the library. And the library had some pretty big issues here, and so did the library in Minneapolis. But rather than uh, basically put the problem onto somebody else, they embraced it. Now, there is security, and if you misbehave, you will not be able to spend time in that library in downtown Minneapolis. If you're, you can sleep, you can sleep in the library as long as you're not disturbing others. And uh, they invest in the time, and they treat people as people and and that's the big takeaway that i found 
is that uh, the livability people that um, patrol the streets, they make those relationships. That happens here in Winnipeg to a certain uh, to a certain effect, but we don't have the authority to back it up. Minneapolis has some of those authorities. By the way, guys, I spent some time on the weekend in Calgary, and there seems to be as much of a solution for Winnipeg. Calgary has what's called the Alpha House Downtown Outreach Addictions Partnership. They have a team, and unlike Minneapolis and Winnipeg, they actually have the power in Calgary to transport people. That program operates 24-7, and they serve what's described as rough sleepers in a, it, throughout the entire city, and they will actually transport people that have alcohol and, and other addictions issues. Minneapolis has as much, if not more, of a homelessness problem as Winnipeg does. But the, the big takeaway that I have, guys, from the comparison is Minneapolis's downtown footprint is a bit smaller than Winnipeg's. There are more people on the streets, but there's more agency people on the streets. There's more boots on the ground. Well- and that's what we need to do here in Winnipeg. Well, that's what I was going to add. You know, the community, the library, the Millennium Library added, I think, a second community outreach worker a year ago, but then it went and added more security. And I know we have some outreach teams with the downtown biz, like they work in the Skywalks and they try to address some of the issues. This is, sounds like a more augmenting all those services so that the footprint, the, there's more people addressing those needs. Not only that, but it's also linking them all together. That was the theme yesterday, the fact that we need to have that communications, that public-private partnership. Well, True North and the other agencies have announced that here, and they're building it from the ground up. The key debate that we need to get into in this city is that other type of task force. Will the Winnipeg Police Service be able to say uh, to this agency, and this is going to require some, some legislative changes, to that agency that you can handle these cases, um, it's not a police response, it's not a fire paramedic response. And that is going to be the heavy lifting in Winnipeg that would likely require um, some amendments to, to current legislation on this because you're taking away authority from the police and the fire paramedic service and ultimately responsibility and putting it into the hands of an other entity. Changing the way we use our resources. I know you're going to have much more throughout the day with Jeff Courier, Hal, and on, of course, on your show with Richard. Thanks very much for this. With you your bet. show with Julie. Richard's show with Richard. Yeah, you can't. Uh, you have to have Julie. Oh, man. You're, you, Loren, you better just issue the email I think I'm going to send her an email and apologize right now. I you, do have sh- that, you do have that Wilson Phillips thing in common, though. You, <laughs> they both I was like watch- Okay. Yeah. And I was watching uh, Loren dance here. We've got the video system at Global here, and I was watching you dance just before the news. You've got you've got the moves on Julie. I'll tell you that right okay, now. Okay, well, I'm going to email her and apologize, declare a dance-off, and uh, we'll wrap this up. Thanks, Richard. McGarry and McNabb, Mackling's on his way to Calgary. Huge news. If you're a fan of Motley Crue, massive news yesterday. Here's the video they released voiced by Machine Gun Kelly, who played Tommy Lee in that Netflix movie, The Dirt. In 2014, Motley Crue announced their final tour, putting an end to almost 35 years on the road. To make it official, they signed an unprecedented contract. You know I'm a dreamer. In the years since, Motley Crue became more popular than ever and gained an entirely new legion of fans who, along with diehard crew heads, demanded the band tear up that stupid contract and come out of retirement. 
they knew that if they were ever to stand on stage together again, that contract would have to be destroyed. Well, destruction has never been an issue for Motley Crue. So what you saw in that video was this purported contract on a desk, and as he says, destruction's never Motley Crue's problem. Then the desk blows up and the whole office blows up, and indeed, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, and Poison are set for a 2020 stadium tour. And that's got to be exciting for anybody who's a Motley Crue fan. I've seen all three of these guys separately like 10, 15 years ago. Really? Not at their heyday when they came back for like, I think their first of 17 farewell tours or something. But it was good. They were all good. Uh, not as great as they would have been back in the day. Yep. Uh, but good. I would definitely, this would be, this would be fun. Yeah. And this Motley Crue thing, like this, do- this document that they say yes. that they signed. I don't buy this. Yeah, like they so they did their their farewell tour 2014-2015 and then prior to the tour the band claimed and this is according to Rolling Stone prior to the tour the band claimed to sign a cessation of touring agreement which they said was a binding document that would prohibit them from ever playing again after the tour ended the group's management failed to produce this alleged document despite repeated requests and the only loophole says bassist Nikki Six, the only loophole is if all four band members agreed to do it, we could override our own contract. So it was a great stunt, mm-hmm. I guess, in I the just, event that they ever got back together. I just don't know how true it is, but whatever. I, I guess it doesn't matter. They, it works for a good video. Yeah. It'll work for great or at least average music. That's a solid long con. Like maybe this was their plan all along. I, Let's I was, take a hiatus. Yeah. I was thinking that, especially because they, uh, when they ended the dirt like that, or the dirty, what the heck was it called? I think it was the dirt. The movie was dirty, though. Yeah. Uh, when they ended it like that, I wondered, like, is this, seems like it's setting it up for something. If you want to read more, we've linked the Rolling Stone story to our 680 CJOB Instagram story. I'm excited about our next guests. Because I just learned that this young man who is in grade 10, you asked, where do you go to school? And he says, he just started to say, Collège Pierre. And I said, what? (laughs) Collège Pierre Elliott Trudeau. I graduated in 1995 from Trudeau. So why don't you introduce our guests here? Well, he's a grade 10 student at the high school. His name's Jeffrey Robbins, and he's in studio with his mom and dad, Shannon and Keith Robbins. And they're here to tell about a program that I actually just learned about through a social media post last week called About Face. And it's new to me, not new to you, Jeffrey. So first of all, welcome. Thank you for being here. I know you're missing what? It was a jazz band? Uh, jazz band. Yeah. Jazz. He's ma- missing jazz this morning. But you know what? We appreciate you coming down. Let's talk a bit about About Face. It's a group that works about raising awareness on facial differences. So what do we mean by facial difference? Well, uh, facial difference meaning people that don't um, look a bit different from everybody else, but that's all right because your facial difference, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you look on the outside as long as you have a great personality on the inside that people like. I noticed that as soon as you walked in, your personality is shining through. Do you ever have people stop and say, oh, you do have a facial difference. What, what, what do you, how do you explain it? Or something you're born with? Or, or yeah. is it a conversation that you just start yourself? It's, it's just something I start, start, start myself. I was, born, I, was born, I was born with a paralyzed nerve in my jaw. Half, um, half of my smile shows, and like whenever I smile... You'd only see part of my teeth, but that's all right. Cause me, I don't really care what I look on the outside. I I like being the person that I am today. It's a very neat program. You're kind of an ambassador 
of sorts. Uh, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to spread to the rest of Manitoba and the country? I'm trying to spread the word that everybody, it, it doesn't matter if anybody looks different, it doesn't matter what they look like, as long as they're a great person on the inside. Try to spread the word that that um, you need to look past beyond my face. Shannon, when you look at your son and you listen to your son saying these things, you, you look like you're beaming with pride right now. <laughs> is that a correct assessment? Yeah, he. this has been something that's just taken off for him, and we didn't see it coming. It's just um, he met one, the director at a camp um, last year, and I guess he's stuck in her memory. And then things have come up, and she contacted me and said, you know, he made a really good impression. He's a really good speaker. You know, can we include him in some other things? And he's just taken off with it. It's obviously, as much as you were born with the facial nerve, you're born with confidence, but maybe born with something your parents have given you. Keith, was there a conversation from birth about, okay, we need to try to figure out a way to make him know that it's so much more than what you see in the mirror? No, that's the one thing that he seems to have developed naturally. Just come um, a little bit closer to the mic. We are... Ourselves, we are special education resource teachers, and we built our careers around looking past differences and advocating for those students who um, need a little more help. And with Jeffrey, we've never had to encourage that. I think he's just springboarded off our attitudes for our jobs and developed into what he is today. Have you ever had to, Jeffrey, say to people certain things or talk back to them? Like, have you been treated... Uh, differently, despite your desire to make sure people to see beyond the differences. Yeah, I've had, I have had, diff- I have had lots of people ask certain questions, certain comments, but I, I always answer to them. It's whatever they said isn't always the right thing to say, and I would always try and help them, try and correct them, and make things better, so they can say, so they say the right thing the next time they see someone like that. Are there some words you'd like people not to use? Um, one thing I'd like. To- some things I'd like them not to say is disability or they're different. And Bully, have you dealt with any actual bullying, whether in person or on social media? Uh, not not often. We've had some exclusions, but it doesn't bother me that much anymore. Is it hard on you as parents? I know I know as a parent the hardest part, even when they're just little and wanting to go to school or be included in a birthday party and then they're not, your heart breaks for them uh, often, right? Yeah, he. Uh, I would say middle school was particularly tough for him whether he wants to admit it or not. Um, but he has managed to, he belongs to RWB and M2IP and so he's managed to find a circle of people that he's fine the way he is. He can be who he is. He can... Embrace life, they embrace him, and he's got his group, and that's what keeps him going, I think. Have so, you, so as part of this campaign about face, have you met others with similar situations? Yeah, I've met, I've met lots of new people, lots of new friends, and some of them are even like me. You, uh, he was part, he, there's a video online now, Beyond My Face, and that's why he referred to it. It's the About Face media campaign. And he was one of seven that got to be part of the media campaign. And, you know, I think he saw that he's luckier in a lot of ways that his facial difference isn't as prominent. But then we've also heard that that can even be more difficult because people are caught off guard when they do see it and they don't know what to do. But uh, I think he recognizes that he's got a little bit easier and it makes it easier for him to come out and talk about it, too. The website is aboutface.ca, and Jeffrey's picture is right there on the top right. 
How does that feel? See your your picture on a website like this. It it's amazing being able to see myself somewhere else other than other than uh, my own home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the website uh, aboutface.ca talks about encouragement, education, empowerment. You're certainly doing all those things, Jeffrey. Just quickly, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now that you're adding all these skills. Well, um, I I said this a lot when I was younger too. I want to be someone who helps ever who helps everyone helps people who have di- who has problems and i was thinking maybe maybe uh, volunteering some more with about face jeffrey robbins his mother shannon his father keith thank you very much for joining us today we appreciate the time thanks for having thank us thank you very much again the website aboutface.ca it's time to see beyond facial differences <laughs> So yesterday we shared with you how the downtown biz, True North, the city and police are looking to Minneapolis for some inspiration, might include adding security guards, it might include adding more security cameras, and maybe even a shift in how we respond to different calls when it comes to the possibility of crime or even just intoxicated persons or other. So just after seven, we shared with you how the library in Minneapolis is being used as a safe place for those facing a whole host of issues. We know here in Winnipeg, when it comes to our downtown library, there have been several safety concerns. It's why a second community outreach worker was added there a year ago. It's also why the city says it had to beef up security at its doors. The library, just one part of the equation. We know a lot more is being done in downtown Winnipeg and still needs to be done. Ryan Sneath is the Assistant Chief Paramedic of Operations for the WFPS and joins us in studio. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. Put your headphones on to hear Millie Vanilli. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you reach over while yeah. Brett was talking. And I was like, I think he wants in on this. Yeah, I'm not going to miss that. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot has been going on. I, I had the pleasure of visiting with you and the Main Street Project earlier there this yes. year. I want to start there because when it comes to just the crime that might come out of someone who's drunk or disorderly, that's a big part of the equation in our downtown and in other parts of Winnipeg. And 10 years ago, you helped launch a community paramedic program that would see paramedics go into Main Street Project, where we, of course, have the intoxicated person's detention area, and made a real difference. It's about resources. Tell us a bit about what has been done there and and the difference you think it's made. So that project was largely about meeting patients where they were at uh, and bringing the health care to them rather than having them access emergency care. Uh, Some of the significant improvements we saw, we saw a 54% reduction in ambulance transports from that facility. Uh, we had a profound number of emergencies there every single day. And so having the presence of a paramedic in that community, uh, they were able to meet their needs and connect them with more appropriate resources rather than 911. We were wasting a bunch of money and also just hospital beds. If you think about just taking an intoxicated person to hospital, the cost of that would be exponential. Yeah, it it is obviously a much more cost-effective way, and it is, I'll say, an upstream approach. So rather than waiting to react to everything all the time, which is typically what 911 is, we are the reactive business, Uh, this approach for us took our agency to a proactive, uh, where we were looking to say, how do we we stop these individuals from accessing 911 in the first place, and in in doing so, provide them with more appropriate care and getting them to uh, primary care resources, addressing HIV issues, addressing TB issues, uh, providing them with community antibiotics and, and really creating that collaboration with the primary care network. Are you dealing with more of this stuff downtown than in other neighborhoods in Winnipeg? Yeah, absolutely. Our call density in the downtown area and into the Point Douglas area is much higher than everywhere else. Um, and predominantly what we see in the downtown area uh, is responses for alcohol. Alcohol is still by far our, our largest response in the downtown area. Uh, and in the last several years, we've seen that increase in meth. 
you're looking at it from a healing perspective as a paramedic, but we know, and we've heard the police talk before, but where there's often drugs or alcohol, there's that possibility of crime, maybe not even because the person intended to, but your actions, your behaviors become so distorted when you're on a different substance. Do you see that? Or do you, do, when you, when you arrive on scene somewhere, do you see how the situation could escal- escalate if you weren't there to take care of that person? Yeah, absolutely. What we see often is that population is so vulnerable that they do end up being uh, far more victimized than any other segment of the population. And it isn't necessarily that they are the ones causing the crime. It is that they are the victims of the crime and they are in a vulnerable position that they're being taken advantage of. When it comes to the alcohol calls that you deal with, what are some of the kinds of things that people are going through? So, I mean, some of it is profound substance abuse uh, and addiction that, that they, uh, for themselves, they need a community of support to help them through that. Uh, they need, they need a, an appropriate response, so an appropriate community response initially in that acute phase, but then they also need that follow-up treatment and support throughout as they try to address their addiction. So rather than rushing everybody to hospital if they were deemed to be intoxicated, you're at the Main Street Project where they're often brought now, but then the program's expanded. You have a mobile unit. It's it's called EPIC? EPIC. So, what, so what's that stand for? It's uh, emergency paramedics in the community. And so when we looked at some of the, the uh, things we were doing at Main Street Project and we said, you know, we're able to connect these patients with more appropriate care. These individuals now have primary care providers. They're now finding more trust. Uh, their issues, health issues are being addressed. <clears throat> we started doing that in a more proactive way in a mobile setting. So we said, if it works at Main Street Project, there's no reason why it wouldn't work everywhere else in the city. So what's the mobile setting? Does that mean you're in a van or you're at a different location or how's it work? So yeah, they're in a little SUV uh, and they, they travel to calls in a proactive way. So we do, they have four f- program focus areas. The first one being frequent users of 911. Second one being at-risk individuals. And then we do lab and diagnostic follow-up for the emergency department. And then we do a, a common, common address. So not necessarily a specific individual, but a facility that's accessing our services frequently. Do you ever hear any people say things like, well, why are we wasting money and resources on helping these people? Just lock them up. Just lock them away. Sure. I mean, that, that can be a common, I guess, perception of what is happening there. Uh, but the reality is these individuals need assistance. They need health care. They need resources. Uh, and, and us providing that in a, in a manner of where they are uh, is much safer for them. It's much more appropriate for them. Uh, and they're able to, uh, or they're much more apt to access those services through us. So Richard Clucci had gone down to Minneapolis with Global's Joe Scarpelli to take a look at some of the different programs they have there. And one of them, when they talked about the library, was the fact that there's different laws there that allow different groups of community outreach groups to potentially take someone to hospital or do a transfer or or take away the need for the police to always be involved. What's the response to that kind of model? Because that's kind of what you're doing in the sense of they're not going to hospital all the time. You're just seeing them on the street. So is there a room for or is there a need rather for more mobile units or a change to how we allow patients to be processed and transferred from our downtown? Absolutely. So we, we had looked to increase our, our capacity in the EPIC program to five vehicles across the city, uh, and, and that may increase. We may need additional resources beyond that. Um, we went to two earlier this year. Uh, we were happy to make operational adjustments so that we could do that, but it is for that purpose. It is for recognizing that we need to proactively address these issues uh, other agencies that can help out, uh, like Main Street Project in their vans and Salvation Army has their, their vans in the winter that are on moving patients around. Um, 
I think it is a community approach. I think it is us working together as a community to support these individuals and having that constant communication amongst each other to understand what's going on. Does it ever feel like you're fighting a losing battle? Uh, no, because we see those small differences. So we see those small impacts every single day uh, that, that may seem small to us, but they're massive impacts for one individual's life. They're hard to see, though. I was saying to Brett this morning, I drove in through St. Boniface on my way to work, stopped at Provence and Tache, this man out of nowhere sort of standing there banging on my window. And I immediately, because of just the time of day or whatever, was instantly scared. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I pulled away, I was like, oh, gosh, he probably just needs some help. So I rolled on the window, yelled across the street, what can I do for you? And then I couldn't understand him, quite frankly. So I kept driving, turned around, came back, gave him $5. This is a long roundabout way of saying I had this whole um, tug and push and pull with my heartstrings on, like, I don't want to get hurt. I should help this guy. I'm scared of this person. I should help this guy. And I think that's, whether it's fair or not, that's kind of what people feel when they go into downtown or encounter certain vulnerable peoples because there's that thought, well, what if this does go the bad way? What if they're not just a couple drinks in and looking for 25 cents or whatever it might be? Right. So, I mean, there's other other systems in place and other provinces. And I, in fact, United Way is is looking at their 211 number here. So there's alternative to 911. Uh, and, and it's looking to say, you know, is there a number where we can call where you see somebody like that? And you can say, you know what, I'm not sure what this individual needed. Is there some way I can provide him some assistance? Uh, um, I'm sorry, do we have that or we're looking at so that? So United Way is starting to push out the 2-on-1 number. This currently is just a web-based platform, but they are looking to make it as a uh, move forward with a 2-on-1 access number. Uh, and that is something when, when we look at other provinces to what they've done, uh, they have that, that sort of number in place so that if you see somebody down on the sidewalk uh, or sleeping on a bus bench and you're concerned about their well-being, you can contact that number. So that is something I think we need to look and work towards here in, in Manitoba and in Winnipeg. Um, but those individuals, uh, as much as sometimes they do elicit fear, that fear comes from not understanding or not being aware of their circumstances. Ryan was explaining to us about this mobile unit that's on scene at different locations, trying to help people be proactive so that we don't have to be taking them to hospitals or tying up uh, emergency services or tying up hospital beds. And then I said as he was leaving, well, Ryan, hang on, wasn't this EPIC program, the community paramedic program, the mobile team, almost cut a few years ago? And the truth is it was that you have had to fight to keep it in our city. So what's next for it? Where, where's it going if the dollars are there? So it is program growth. Uh, one of the big things that we look at as a service and actually as a police service um, in, in Winnipeg uh, is mental calls to mental health. Uh, and so individuals suffering from mental illness often uh, elicit a police response or an ambulance response that isn't necessarily the most appropriate way to deal with those individuals. And so we're looking to partner with, with uh, some of our community partners around mental health and address those issues in a more proactive way or in a more appropriate way. So right now you have the two mobile units. You'd be looking to expand to what? Uh, a total of five is what we're looking for right now. Uh, the additional unit that we added in, in June of this year uh, is the one that we're going to focus on mental health. Uh, and so initially we'll look at our common callers and our at-risk individuals, and then we'll look at doing primary 911 response or follow-up for those mental health patients. And I know this program was almost cut a few years ago, so the money you're looking for now is from not from the city, it's from... No, it's no city resources. It, it comes from uh, Shared Health and Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. And that sh- you should know you have that money... Hopefully soon. All right, Ryan Sneath, Assistant Chief Paramedic of Operations for WFPS. Thank you for that. Lots of questions to still ask as we continue throughout the day, Brett. 
McGarry and McNabb. Mackling has landed in Calgary. He is going to join us at 9.35. Now, today we've been playing music from 1990 because that's the last year the Winnipeg Blue Bombers won the Grey Cup. But we're going back to 1980 on request from our guest, who is sitting to my left, Loren McNabb. Well, legendary punter Bob Cameron has joined us in studio. And I had said, Bob, what's your favorite song from 1990? And he said, can we go back a little? <laughs> what was it? You think you started with the 70s, but we got you to 1980. Yeah. That's the year you started with the Blue Bombers. It, it was. And, and after every game, we would play this song. And because if we won, if we, won, if we beat a team, that was the song we played. And is that a discussion that the whole locker room decides? Like, let's, what's our song that we love, or no? There's some guys that sort of take over the locker room, and they they actually run run the uh, back in those days the record player. Correct. Oh, I love it. Well, you were just telling us that we brought you in because we were trying to think of all the players, and there's lots of them that are still in Winnipeg that were yeah. on the last Grey Cup winning team. You were actually on several Grey Cup winning teams, but the last time was 1990. Correct. Can you believe it's been? Like, it's when you crazy. Th- yeah, I remember uh, after the game, after we, we won the game, we, we had the Grey Cup. My son was just born, and he was, he was born, in, I guess, in August. And I, I've got a picture of him sitting in the cup, and now he's, what, 29 years old. And so, uh, yeah, I can see now it's a long time ago, and it's, it's time we change that right now and won another one. How many Grey Cups again is that? Was it three for you? Three. Yeah, won three and unfortunately lost three. Oh. So I know, I, know what, I know what both sides of this is, and losing is not fun at all. So, so that last one would have been 2001? One, correct. Yeah, it was devastating. That one hurt. It, it still bugs me. Still, Why? Have, well, n- number one, I was a punter, and I had a punt blocked, mm-hmm. and they, they scored a touchdown on the, on that blocked punt, and um, we ended up losing, I think, by eight or nine points. So, you know, those those things you never get over. You know, you go over those plays in your mind all the time going, I could have done it, just kicked it a little faster or something like that. You know, could have changed that outcome. And we had a great team. We were 14-4, and four, and we... we uh, we were huge favorites going into that game, and to lose it was just devastating. But on that subject, though, and I, I, I listen, I get it. I mean, I, I, as uh, I'm, I'm a golfer, I'm a mediocre golfer, and I beat myself up all the time. <laughs> exactly. I'm just relentlessly hard on myself. Yeah. But every if, guy is. If you look yeah. at that moment objectively, is there really anything you could have done differently, or are you just being hard on yourself because you're, you know, yeah. you're a competitor? Like I, I hadn't had a punt blocked in two years, and the ball comes back to me. And as it's coming back, I'm looking and seeing that they're not even rushing. And so when that happens, I take a little longer to kick the ball. And what happened then was, you know, it's one of those things. And one, one play can change a game. And my up back on the one side stepped up thinking nobody's coming. But there was a guy on the left side, and he was coming full speed. And he was the only guy that was for Calgary Stampeders that had blocked a punt all year. And he'd blocked two. And some guys would get in and can actually know what they're doing to block it, and other guys just completely miss or they panic. This guy didn't miss, and he got it. And uh, they scored and, and won and uh, helped them win the game. Well, so. I'm going to say you are being hard on yourself because I also remember yeah. being at the airport in 2001 for Global TV. Troy Westwood got off the plane. There had been a missed field yeah. goal as well, and he still had that look in his eye, and I bet you every once in a while yeah. it comes back in when you replay the bad, it's, but there's been so much good. Yes, you're right. And and we were underdogs in 1988, and we were underdogs in 1990. We were supposed to lose both those games. And I know Winnipeg's an underdog right now in, the, in this game. Everybody thinks Hamilton's going to win. But it's one game, one shot. You never know what's going to happen. Well, you just got an interesting phone call before you stepped into the studio. Yeah, Tell it was us about crazy. that. Who was, was, who was um, ringing? I was at home, and Justin Medlock phoned me. And um, 
I, it was California. I saw on the phone. I said, "Why well, should I answer this?" I asked my wife. She go, "Yeah." So Justin Medlock was pretty cool. He he phoned me and said, "Listen, I want to wear your jersey at a. Um, um, they've got some kind of um, a, a big meeting, I guess, when when they get off the plane, and he wanted to wear my jersey coming off the plane." And I said, "Listen, you know, I'm not going to be able to make make it there in time, and they were leaving this morning. So, but we we had a really good talk and." I was that was pretty cool that someone you know as great as he is and I mean, to me he's the best field goal kicker ever to play in the Canadian Football League, and um, for him to phone me and and I wished him good luck. I mean it was pretty it was pretty neat. Do you have advice because I think every year is different, every team's different. Uh, you're going into a different field perhaps than any you know you might have played at before in terms of the championship game. So you've won three and you've lost three, yeah. having had both those sides of the equation. It's a pretty special week, so it's hard to tell players to enjoy a yeah. few days. But that's an important part of it, too, is it not? Well, you want to enjoy it, but, I mean, there's one focus, and that, that's win the Grey Cup. That's, that's all it is. So any, you never want to do anything that's going to take you away from that. You know, you, you go back um, to the hotel, and these guys go over plays. I mean, you're not going out uh, at night. You may go out to, like, 10 o'clock at night or something like that, but it's, it's all about winning the, winning the thing because... As I was saying before, losing it is devastating, and you don't want to have that. Winning it is so cool. It's so great. You come back here, the big parade, you know, we went to the arena, and the arena was packed, and it was just euphoria. It was um, it's something you never forget. It's just, uh, and then, then there's, on top of that, there's a bond with all the players that you play with, and you win with those guys. You know, every time we have a reunion, every 10, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, we all get together and it's just like we just want it again. So, I mean, it's, um, it's a really neat thing for the players especially, I mean, for, and for the city. I mean, it's, it's time we want it, want it again. That's 29 years of mounting pressure and the hopes and dreams of every Bomber fan. And, I mean, if you were to ask Coach O'Shea, he would say he doesn't bother him at all, doesn't concern him at all. Right. But... These guys are still only human beings. They can tell us that they're not thinking about it, but are they really not thinking about it? I, I think once a game starts, I mean, it's a it's a nice sidelight that, yeah, the pressure's on you guys. But I remember in, in 1984 when we won the Grey Cup, we hadn't won a Grey Cup in 22 years at that point. And so there wasn't really, as a player and all the rest of the guys in the team, we are totally focused on winning this game. And we're not really thinking about that. Now, before the game, people talking, sure, it's brought up, but that really isn't, it makes no difference at all to the players, to be honest with you. It's not going to make change at all. But afterwards, once you win it, and you see the incredible adulation of the fans and how excited they are, that's when it really hits you that this is a monumental uh, victory for the Bombers. You mentioned 1984, and a lot of our listeners have pointed out it was the Ticats you beat. It was. And it was Dieter Brock, who we traded to Hamilton the year before. And we had Tom Clements, their quarterback. So there was some pretty neat, neat things going on there against Hamilton. So, um, yeah, it was, um, it was an, an incredible game. We were, we were down 17-3 to in that game in the second quarter. And we ended up coming back. They didn't score another point, and we just lit it up. We intercepted balls. We uh, picked up fumbles, took them in for a touchdown. Stan Mikowas did that. And, um, and we ended up winning, I think it was, what, 47 or 48 to 17. So, you know, game, one game situation, you never know what's going to happen. That's why the total focus, I guarantee you, Mike O'Shea's, you've got those guys 
totally under control. He's won Grey Cup. He know he know, he knows what it's all about. Well, and it feels like this team. I know that they started strong and then they kind of sputtered. Yeah. But it really feels like they've come into their own. They, the last two games. Uh, I didn't think they would win in Calgary, not because I don't believe in the Bombers, but just yeah. because Calgary always beats them in Calgary. And they then they, they pulled out that incredible victory and then the big win over Saskatchewan. It just feels like this team has the momentum. I, we've, we've heard people talk about the football gods seem to be <laughs> smiling upon the Bombers. Well, let's, let's hope so. We we need whatever we can get. And and honestly, you're you're right. I, I no Nobody really gave the Bombers much of a chance going into Calgary. But um, I mean that the the whole change I think was Zach Galeros. I mean once once he came in there, this guy can throw a deep ball. And then we have the you know um, Screvler with his running ability. So if one thing's not going, we can change and go go the other way. So I mean that that to me was the biggest change. Um, his deep deep ball throwing in both those games uh, turned the game in our favor. You had three Grey Cup wins: eighty four, eighty eight, ninety. Is there one that's your favorite? Is the first always the favorite? Yeah, the or? first was unbelievable. I mean, it was a great year for me. I got married in 84 and then in the spring and then win the Grey Cup and it was it was crazy. And then they're all they're all fantastic. And then 88, we were huge underdogs against BC Lions and I um, was fortunate enough to have a really good game. It was a really windy windy day and I'll never forget. I, I shanked my first punt, went about 15 yards, and so then what they did then, and it, but it rolled to like 30. So what they did is they they put three guys back, and so that means I've got all day back there because nobody's going to rush. They got three guys back, so I took all all day to, and and put it over their heads a couple of times, and so I had a really good game, and we won by one point. It was incredible. We get the ball. I mean, so to me, it's it's. Like lots lots of games as a punter, you're really not that. It really don't make much of a difference in the game. So I felt like I I had a really good game and we won, which was to me, eighty eight was was fantastic winning that game because nobody expected us to win. And what? Go ahead, Brett. No, no, you go ahead. You got to follow. What's going to stand out from nineteen ninety? Is well, that... the, the nineteen ninety was uh, sort of crazy too because uh, we were playing against Edmonton Eskimos and um, they were they were favored in that game too. And it was ten to six at halftime in that game, really close game, and then just it was crazy. The blew second the doors open, blew the doors right off. It was crazy. Like the start of the second half, we intercepted balls. They fumbled. I mean, everything that could have gone right for us went right for us, and everything that could have gone bad for them did. I mean, they they fumbled punts, they fumbled kickoffs. I mean, it was, and we ended up winning fifty to eleven. So. As I say, in any game, you never know what's going to happen. And that, that's, I, I just think we're a team of destiny, and, and I, I really think we're going to win this. There's no, there's no weaknesses on this team, and we can go either way on offense. And I think our defense has really shown in the last couple of weeks that they can put the hammer down on, on pretty good offensive teams. And I think Hamilton is, and this is it. We're going to win it. You're that's going to the game? What's that? You're going to the game? I am going to the game, absolutely. I'm flying out uh, Friday morning. And um, I'm going to take into some of the festivities. I, I hope to even, if possible, get to the uh, a practice on uh, on the Saturday morning. They, I know they're going to practice the day before the game, so I'm going to see if I can get down and see and, the, see the and guys. And no stress for you now. This is just a fun Grey Cup week. Absolutely, yes. But you you're know. a fan. That that's stressful. You know, I and you're right. And and I get stressed too. I, I watch games, and I'll uh, you know at the end of the last game there when we didn't intercept that ball and. Boy, I was screaming at the TV, and I was going nuts. And then, then I saw saw those guys screw up, and 
and drop the ball. I mean, it was it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, my kids learned some new words from mom Sunday yeah. night. I'm not <laughs> oh, as proud oh, to say I'll it, tell you, when, when, when that pass hit the upright or the, the crossbar, <laughs> I was jumping up and down. Oh, yeah, it was great. Bob Cameron from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, legendary kicker joining us live on 680 CJOB. Bob, thank you very much for this visit. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.